Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guests today are Malta Dolds and Tim Krieger, co-editors of Auto Liberalism and European Economic Policy, Between Rail Politic and Economic Utopia, published as a paperback in April by Routledge. Described in a 2017 book title as a German oddity, Auto Liberalism was, as Stefan Kolev writes in this latest volume, one of a number of neoliberalisms that emerged out of the political maelstrom of the interwar period. Unlike the other liberal splinters, auto-liberalism, founded at the University of Freiburg by economist Walter Eucken and jurist Franz Böhm, was quickly tested in the real world. The Germany rebuilt out of the ashes of war was founded on its principles, rules-based economics, independent agencies protected from politics, and the state as arbiter. The West German economic miracle followed by the successive reunification were a testament to order liberalism's effectiveness. As the European community became a union and created the euro, the other members were keener to import the success than the rules. When crisis struck from 2008 onwards, Europe's rules-based approach was severely stress-tested and continues to be during the pandemic. Is this crisis due to order liberalism's failings or a sign of its success? Can and should auto-liberalism adapt and survive? These are some of the questions asked and answered in this collection of essays by leading autos and auto-skeptics. My guests today are definitely in the first category. Malta Dold is an assistant professor of economics at Pomona College in California, with a master's from Bayreuth and a PhD from Freiburg. Currently at Freiburg, Tim Krieger is professor of constitutional political economy, with a master's from Kiel and a PhD from Munich. Tim and Malta, welcome to the podcast. Well, hi, Tim. Uh, thanks for having us. So, thanks. That's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Definitely. Well, before we get into the book, I'd like to start by defining the term order liberalism. But between you, could you explain what it is, tell the story of how it emerged in Freiburg and spread? and how it differs from the other new forms of liberalism that, that emerged after the, after the First War? Yeah, maybe I can answer that question, um, because I'm, I'm part of, of the Freiburg School, and uh, the Freiburg School basically uh, goes back to the 1930s, 1940s, when it was uh, founded as, as one of uh, yeah, several neoliberal schools uh, that evolved in that time, or emerged in that time, uh, like in, in Chicago, London, uh, and Vienna. And uh, it was actually only later called Auto Liberal School. Um, 
because uh, there was this journal called Ordo, which was published by Walter Eucken and uh, some other prominent scholars from Freiburg and elsewhere. Uh, and so, so in the 1950s, roughly, it started to be called um, auto-liberalism. And uh, th there are some similarities with these other neoliberalisms, uh, as you mentioned, but on the other hand, there are also some differences. Um, first of all, um, historically, the idea was um, that all these neoliberalisms wanted to resolve some of the problems of laissez-faire liberalism. Uh, especially the problem that unrestricted competition uh, can lead to a concentration of economic and political powers in the hands of a small group of people. And this was something that was possible in laissez-faire um, liberalism because uh, the state or the government uh, was not supposed to play any role in, in the markets. And, and uh, the new neoliberalisms and especially the auto liberals said, okay, we need to have a much stronger role of the government um, in safeguarding the competitive order. Okay, so, so the idea was not so much to say uh, we allow the government interventions into the markets, but the idea was to have rules for markets, um, which was then called uh, by the Freiburg School the uh, constitution for the markets. Uh, and this includes, for example, antitrust legislation. Um, today, we would probably call this simply market institutions, but, but in, in Freiburg, there was always this, this group of economists and lawyers or law professors who were working together. And this led to this strong emphasis of legal rules, of constitutions, and which was later actually found uh, again in, the, in, in James Buchanan's work and uh, in the Virginia School. Uh, who were doing constitutional economics. And, and James Buchanan was actually the honorary president of the Walter Eucken Institute in Freiburg uh, for mm. a very long time uh, because of that. And uh, So this is th there are some, some linkages between these groups and, and especially this emphasis of, of legal rules and constitutions that was kind of specific to the Freiburg School. And it was all about this restricting... Um, economic power concentrations, political power and, uh, concentrations, which were, by the way, very important for the Freiburg people because they were part of the resistance movement against the Nazi dictatorship mm. in the 1930s and 40s. And so they had personal experiences of oppression and therefore they were also very political uh, thinkers. And do you... I mean, the people you described there. I, uh, I mean, obviously, um, there are there's there's the sort of German wing of order liberalism, and then the spread to the Chicago School and to people like James Buchanan. I think many people would associate at least most of those people as being on the right of politics. Is is there an order liberalism of the left or the center? I mean, I, I know some of your writers touch on this this the the, the sort of social the marrying of social policy and economic policy is it something that has become associated with the right or was or is correctly associated with the political right yeah maybe maybe yeah, right I, I give it a try here um so you're absolutely absolutely uh, right in uh you know if you look at the sociology of auto liberals and auto liberal professors in post world war ii germany that there was a let's say center-right leaning of those um, 
professors that were following in the mm-hmm. footsteps of those earlier auto liberals. And you could even look at those interwar auto liberals that were part of a larger, uh, you know, group of neoliberals that met, you know, in the 30s, in the late 30s, in the clock Walter um, um, Lippmann, right, in, in, in Paris. Mm-hmm. And, and there was always that, um, you know, affiliation with a center-right, um, slightly conservative, um, you know, political wing. But interestingly, and I think that is, you know, contested in, in contemporary scholarship on autoliberalism, the question is always, is it found in the original ideas, for example, of Walter Eucken, right? Is there something inherently conservative in the ideas? And um, Tim and I, we tend to think that that's an open question. Um, and it's more of a historical, sociological development that happened then and not necessarily linked to those original ideas. And um, interestingly, uh, Walter Eucken um, you know, starts one of his famous um, books that was posthumously um, published in, in, in 52 with the social question. So basically, economics is um, not first. The social question is first. And what he means by social question is questions of, you know, uh, social justice. Um, and, and, and if you start with that question, um, quite frankly, you know, it's an open um, um, or it's an open debate whether that's really um, a center-right starting point. Now, just one more point on that, um, and I think that maybe leads us to some of the contemporary discussions. The um, Apart from what Tim just said, um, that power and the dispersion of power was a, a very important um, point of the early order liberals, nowadays, often order liberalism, there's a shortcut um, thinking that order liberalism equates thinking in rules and you know the strict adherence to rules. And mm-hmm. if, if you have that very shortcut reading, you could come to the conclusion and think, well, it's all about austerity policies. It's all about those typically affiliated with more conservative, also, you know, Chicago school economists like, like, like Friedman, like Buchanan and, and others. But at, we, at least in, in this, uh, in our book and in, in our writings, Tim and I, we tend to say that it's very much an open question whether that there's a necessary link between auto liberalism and uh, um, conservatism and center right uh, politics. Yeah, and I, I I did finally identify the two chapters I was referring to uh, the to, towards the end of the book to walk before your conclusion. The chapters by uh, uh, Julian Durr, Niels Goldschmidt, and Alexander Langer, and the one by Bridget Young, where they talk about the the social market economy side, the need for stronger cohesion policy, and the tradition from Alfred Muller Armack onwards of um, trying to marry order liberalism and modern social policy. I, I guess with the idea of the idea of creating a buy-in for all social groups and therefore buying social peace is that. Well, I guess we could come to it later, but is is that a tradition that developed later in order liberalism, or was that that element always there right from the beginning? Well, I would, yeah, yeah, I, I would say uh, this is something that was there from the beginning. I mean, and this this started with a social question that Malta just mentioned, and uh, there, there is, of course, this this strong influence uh, of of the Freiburg School on uh, the development of the social market economy in Germany, um, and so this is also in in some of the chapters of the book. You you can really 
see how these these um, let's say market uh, based thinking of the Freiburg School, which was always open to the social question, merge with some social Catholic thinking uh, by by others. Uh, in in the German uh, post uh, World War society, and uh, bringing these two things together then led to this idea of a social market economy, and and that was something that evolved over time. What what happened then later was uh, basically that um, I, I at least that's my interpretation. Um, it, some of the auto liberal scholars became more conservative again. Um, and especially when there was this paradigm shift in the 1970s, 1980s uh, towards more supply-side economics. And that, that mm-hmm. was embraced by, by some of the German auto-liberal professors that were around. And that is basically um, shaping the picture that we have or that, that some people at least have nowadays of what auto-liberalism is. So, so it was more social in a sense in the beginning and then it became more more conservative over time. And now uh, the, the younger scholars um, and, and the ones you, you mentioned in the book, um, like Nils Goldschmidt and uh, Brigitte Young, they, they are moving back basically to the roots of the social ideas um, by, by, the auto, uh, by the early auto-liberals. Right. Well, coming to the book now, um, it was based on a, book, uh, a workshop you called in 2016. Uh, what prompted you to call that workshop? How did it develop into a book? And and how did you get uh, Wolfgang Schäuble to write the preface? Was that a <laughs> was that a difficult process? Um, well, let let me start with with the origins of of the book and and this workshop. There was actually a, a workshop before that that was organized by Josef Hin, who is also participating in our book and contributed a chapter. And Christian Jürges uh, that took place in Berlin, and and I went there and presented a paper that Malta and I did, and and I met a couple of these people that we later invited to our workshop, um, and it, it was really fascinating to see this discussion because there were really auto skeptics all around, and and very few who were still uh, supporting auto liberalism. And it was interesting. It was a lot of lawyers who were, who were still supporting auto liberalism. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's a nice idea to bring this to Freiburg. And we had, uh, the 75th birthday of a major donor of of Freiburg university and, and he he was strongly interested in auto liberalism. And so I thought, Let's let's have a little uh, workshop um, to honor this donor, and um, uh, so that is how things evolved. And, and then we asked Lars Feld and Volker Berghahn, Brigitte Young, and others, even Werner Bonefeld, who's really an auto skeptic, uh, <laughs> and, and they all came, and it was a great event. And, and uh, yeah, and everything evolved from that basically. And we had a lecture series then in the in the next semester. Um, where where we invited Kenneth Dyson and and uh, many other people and and then the word spread somehow and we, we decided to have have this this volume uh, and and suddenly some people like Ottmar Issing uh, gave us a call and asked well can I also contribute a chapter and we said wow this is great all these these mm. uh, really interesting people Rüdiger Bachmann uh, Michael Wohlgemuth and so on. So they, they all wanted to participate. And, and so the, 
yeah, we, we ended up with uh, with uh, many more chapters and contributors than we initially had in this in this workshop, and, and it was wonderful. And and well, and at the end of the day, I mean, I, we we simply um, uh, ask Wolfgang Schäuble basically by writing him a letter, and and he he is an alumni from uh, alumnus from from uh, Freiburg University. And he's very yeah. open to the, uh, this kind of thing to support uh, his, his uh, old university. And uh, so he immediately agreed, basically, uh, to write this forward to our volume. Maybe just, Actually, I saw, uh, yeah, maybe go ahead. if I can uh, jump in here. I mean, the interesting thing is, apart from, uh, you know, what, what Tim just said, that also the, you know, the broader uh, debate at, at the time, right, um, before 2016, um, there were many voices in, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-American media and in academia uh, that published very critical articles uh, about auto-liberalism in, in connection to the European um, economic crisis uh, that was still lingering on at the time. Mm. And the interesting thing was that neither, uh, you know, some of the German critics nor those, uh, you know, international critics um, really engaged on a deeper level with, um, you know, contemporary auto-liberal scholarship. Um, and we said, let's, uh, th- so that there was basically this gap. And we said, we need to do something that is for an international audience also ultimately and publish then something in, in English. Uh, and I think that was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but something that was also out there on a broader um, scale that motivated this project. Oh no! It cer- cer- certainly was, and 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 even even. Oh, sorry, we're mixing up the Tims now. I, I knew that would happen. Uh, but uh, um, but no, no, no. It 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 certainly was out there. And I, I see that the two of you on on Twitter were suggesting having a follow up workshop once the pandemic is over in in Freiburg, maybe at the end of this year or early next year. Is, it, it, is that a is is it really that you want to follow up with the? Um, the obviously the huge change in circumstances since 2016 and even since the publishing of the book with the with the significant changes in economic policy due to the pandemic we haven't really thought about the the pandemic issue but um uh, our idea was to to bring together younger scholars uh, who are interested in auto liberalism because i mean there there is this bias that uh also in the book um Many of these scholars uh, who contributed are already a little bit older, uh, mm. established professors, um, and or some of them even retired professors. Uh, and we thought, um, because we, we got so much positive feedback, from, especially from younger scholars, um, that we thought, okay, we need to do something where, where the, the old guys basically uh, do, are not the ones who, who are presenting the papers, who are, who are advancing the new ideas, uh, but maybe just comment on that, uh, but let the younger guys uh, do the work, present their ideas. Uh, and I don't know do, whether we really came up with a with an age limit but i would say like 45 or 40 or something like that so so people should be young and and there are some people around who are working on these issues and and we really want to give them um yeah a podium or an audience to to uh, present their ideas and and then maybe uh, have a nice uh workshop on that and publish another book i don't know we're 
We're not at that point yet, but but that's the idea. Well, yeah, I'll look forward to that. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, there are so many strands to the book, so it's difficult to know where to start. But I'll I'll probably start with um, Kenneth Dyson's chapter where he he concludes that uh, the crisis may have, quote, may have corresponded in, in substantial part with order liberalism, but they were not caused by order liberalism. And his, his, his thesis is that the origins of the crisis were systemic. In other words, monetary union was born with too few creditor states and too many debtor states. Do, do you think that is a, is that something you would agree with? That, that's a really good question. Uh, may, maybe I can answer that or try at least. I, I, mm-hmm. I think it's the, the, the origins of the crisis are systemic, but I, I would provide a different explanation than, than Kenneth Dyson is doing because I think uh, Dyson's argument is, is somewhat too static um, in this case. I mean, what, what he, he does is he basically states, okay, they, in the beginning, there, there, there is a fixed set of, of um, states that are involved and, and there are not enough uh, creditor states in the sense of, of somehow redistributing uh, resources from the creditor states to the debtor states. Uh, and, and this, this is, uh, in a sense, uh, I mean, you, you, if that would be the case, you would probably never start uh, within, uh, with something like a monetary union. What you basically expect is that, that something is, is going to happen in a dynamic sense, that, um, that the monetary union would be so economically successful that all countries would actually benefit from that. And um, it, the problem was that usually, I mean, this, this, you wouldn't really expect to, that this is going to happen, but, but these positive and dynamic adjustment processes uh, did not take place in, in the EMU for a long time. I mean, they basically, they stopped in 2008. Up to that point, I would say this was really kind of successful system. And then the problem started. And, and my explanation was uh, that these, these adjustment processes, they, they were not complete. They were not sufficient. Uh, there was not really a sustainable catch-up process of um, of some of the southern European countries. There were also too little um, new innovations in economically weaker states that would help to to generate this kind of catch-up process. Although there was, of course, an extensive um, um, subsidization uh, through European uh, funds. Uh, and there was also very little um, internal migration. So, so the preconditions for what, what the economists then call an optimal currency area were, were hardly fulfilled. And, and there is a second problem with that, and that is what, what um, Johannes Becker and, and Clemens Fust in their chapter described, that is this, this fundamental commitment problem uh, that the, the countries could not commit to following the rules they agreed to. And I mean, these rules were fair weather rules and, and there was also basically fair weather politics. But as soon as there was a, uh, a country facing an economic problem or, or an asymmetric shock, uh, it, this country was, was no longer willing to, to follow the rules. The incentives were just too strong to breach the rules. And, and I'm not saying this... Um, because uh, of, of the southern European countries being a problem. I mean, it was Germany and France 
uh, who were the first countries to ignore the deficit mm. criterion of the Maastricht Treaty. And uh, so, so the rules, uh, and that's, that's the autoliberal take, of course, the rules were not sufficient for, uh, for setting up this kind of monetary union, which, is, which was not uh, an optimal currency area and, and would have needed a, a different institutional setting to come up with, with this kind of uh, union. I thought the chapter by, on, in that respect, I thought the chapter by uh, Thomas Biebercher was very interesting because he he has this view that there is a tendency towards towards order liberalism or the Eurozone, uh, given the emerging link between risk, liability, and market exit. And I, I do, I'm very interested to hear your views on this, but I suspect this is correct, that, the, that while the original design was not fit for purpose, the the challenges of first of all the uh, the the negative overspill from the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, then the sovereign debt crisis, then the triggering of the doom loop between the banks and the sovereigns, and now the uh, uh, the impact of the pandemic has essentially forced adaptation, and that maybe not next time. I mean, probably next time. Maybe not next time, but the time after the Eurozone will be fit for purpose. And as he points out, the missing piece in his view is an explicit uh, sovereign insolvency procedure. Um, but I would argue that there is already an implicit procedure there with the collective action clauses in the bonds, the revised uh, European uh, Stability Mechanism Treaty. I, I'm very interested to hear the views of the two of you, whether you share that auto optimistic view of Biebricher or whether you are more pessimistic? Um, maybe I go briefly first, but um, Tim can, uh, can then yeah. uh, go, go second. So I, um, in a sense, I hope you're right uh, that, you know, we have learned from the past and both in terms of, you know, what type of, you know, economic reasoning we enshrine into our rules on the European level. And on the other hand, also uh, in terms of that, um, you know, democracy deficit that we sometimes have when it comes to economic policy making. Personally, I, I have my doubt <laughs> mm. because the next crisis will be different. Uh, but um, mm. I, I, I hope that, you know, we have learned uh, from, from this severe crisis, obviously, and that... Um, whether, whether we call them auto-liberal or, or whether we call them economically sensible rules, um, I don't care, actually. Um, but, um, yeah, as I said, I hope you're right. I, I totally agree with Malta on that point. Um, I, I would also say, I mean, it's uh, we, we've done a couple of steps now, like the banking union um, and, and, and uh, all these... Um, uh, other support uh, instruments that we introduced now. Um, in, so, so, so I'm not so much concerned that we're going to see the same kind of crisis again. Uh, something has changed there. There, there, there is a, a better understanding of, of uh, the problems. And of course, I mean, it, it takes a long time. It's, it's a very complicated political process um, because it is also about uh, sharing um, some some debt, some liabilities, uh, some some um, economic harms uh, in a way that would not 
happen for all the countries if if they were completely independent. So, so uh, and so so as long as we basically decide to to live in a in the European Union uh, for reasons that are not purely economic, uh, I I guess. Uh, we 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 always face this this issue that we we need to to respond to certain challenges that come up that are new, um, and we will probably never come up with a perfect uh, institutional setting for that because of uh, these new challenges that we we are having difficulties to anticipate. But as Malta said, I mean, if if we would be uh, at least sensible enough to really think about economic consequences uh, and and try to anticipate what could happen uh, and uh, and not to to wait until the last moment and then uh, the problem is there and then we have to negotiate and about these things about burden sharing in a sense uh, when you know already who are the winners and who are the losers um, because then things are getting really complicated. And that's what we've seen of the, the financial crisis. I mean, it was really difficult. It took years to, to come up with this solution, and it's basically a solution only uh, for future crises uh, that may come up. Um, uh, so, so we are setting up institutions for the future, uh, but, but uh, not for resolving basically what has happened in for example, the financial crisis, or maybe now during the pandemic. And uh, just thinking more in, in terms of, of uh, yeah, what, what would be a good constitu- institutional setting uh, that is sensible to economic questions, to incentives uh, that arise would already help, I would say. Mm. Do, do, do you not think sometimes, you, maybe you're being a little harsh in that, um, if you look at the crisis countries, I mean, the countries that actually had to take programs, so not, not France, not Italy, but, but Spain, Ireland, Portugal, uh, Greece, um, all these countries, while, you know, your typical auto might have wanted there to be in a very strict no bailout rule from the start, that didn't happen, but they did have to follow uh, externally set programs they did have to carry out structural and budgetary policies they didn't want to carry out. And arguably, they're in a much, most of them, if not all of them, are in a much stronger economic position now than they would have been. And all that is due to the fact that there were rules in place. And and it, what made me think of that question was when you talked about how long it took to come to a lot of these agreements. The reason it took such a long time is that you had this, in inverted commas, auto pushback from a number of the northern European states that meant that you that that at least a portion of the rules were applied. It wasn't the same as the super discretionary policies you had in the UK or, or the United States. So yeah, are, are you being a little harsh? Good good question. Um, uh, let me let me start a little bit differently by, by saying I, I wouldn't necessarily call the rules that existed very auto-liberal. I mean, it was the idea uh, when, when we set up the Maastricht Treaty, it was the idea to uh, avoid uh, it, 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 yeah, it, it, the, the, the emergence of, of, of problematic 
uh, incentives. So, so this, I mean, that's the classical commitment problem, basically, that we have. So, so everyone agrees on something, and um, and it looks nice to have a monetary union, but but uh, we are not basically not ready to have a monetary union uh, because uh, some adjustment mechanisms don't work. We don't have harmonization. Uh, of of uh, economic policies and all this kind of stuff and and it, this was certainly not the ideas of of the auto liberals in the 1990s um uh, they were actually opposing uh the entire monetary union and, and said mm. okay according to this so-called coronation theory uh the the, the uh, common um, currency that should be the end of a process of, of European integration. And only at the very end, when we are well integrated, we should have uh, the euro as our common currency. Um, mm. And it, so, so most of the auto liberals uh, of, who were involved in, in uh, this debate in the 1980s and 1990s, they would say, well, this is, I mean, this is kind of, it, it helped a little bit, or it was the idea to, uh, to, to have at least a little bit of a rule uh, that avoids excessive government spending, uh, but it was in, from the start it was insufficient. And and now they of course argue that uh, this uh, they they were proved right in a sense. Um, what what I dislike about uh, much of the discourse, especially on on the German side, was uh, that. Uh, that it was claimed that w- that we are we should follow some auto liberal rules here, uh, which we were not so much interested in uh, in the beginning, and and then it was labeled as something auto liberal. But it was uh, mm. especially the crisis resolution was very much, in my opinion, something that is uh, driven by by national interest. Uh, I mean. Uh, it would have been really hard for Angela Merkel to convince the German voters to pay uh, mm. for for some some other European countries uh, that are in in deep economic trouble, which I think was probably not the right answer to this problem. I mean, because I would always argue that the European Union is more than just an economic union; it is also um, something that is related to solidarity, and it's also especially a peace project. And it, it seems to me that the new generation of politicians in Germany, but also in other countries, uh, has somehow forgotten that this is the overall aim uh, of, of the European Union, to be more than just an economic union. Although, of course, economics is really important, but, mm-hmm. but still... Um, so, so it, it, the Germans were harsh, uh, and and other European, northern Europeans were were harsh as well uh, on the on the southern Europeans, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't really happy with that. Uh. <laughs> let, let me throw in yeah, one more thought yeah. that is slightly, uh, I mean, going off in a, in a different direction, and that is, you know, the question that you asked him was, uh, you know. Aren't we now all, I mean, in, in, in those countries better off since we followed basically those, uh, those rules? Uh, and some people yeah. would say those, you know, uh, auto-liberally sounding uh, rules. And I think what is important to note is that in auto-liberal scholarship, there's also a shift away from 
the self-understanding of the 1980s and 90s that was uh, very expert-driven, you know, these, um, I would say, slightly older white men um, thinking about the sensibility of certain rules. Uh, mm. But, you know, it, in doing so, you neglect um, a scholarship that was um, really pushed in, in the 90s and then the 2000s. And Victor Van Berg is a, is a very important uh, person in this regard that said, well, we cannot just talk about the content of rules. Uh, we also have to talk about uh, uh, basically the process of legitimation of those rules, right? Uh, and how far is it the citizens, the consumers that are sovereign when we talk about those rules or on how far they impose? And we, when, when we look uh, into, you know, polls that came out after um, some of those rules that we're now talking about that were implemented in, in Greece, um, in Italy, uh, in Spain, etc., you see that people were not just you know, welcoming the, those measures, uh, but there was resistance. And the resistance was because of that top-down procedure that was inherent in the setup of um, you know, those um, Troika uh, measures. And I think mm. that's important to note that um, although liberalism has at its core not just a thinking in rules and order, but at its core is a liberal democratic program. Um, and mm. there is a tension there, right? And that it's a tension that goes well beyond order liberalism. If we think about economic expertise more general, we have that tension. But I think it's an, an important point to mention that when we talk about is this rule order liberal, we cannot just talk about the form and the content of the rule. We also have to talk about how did this rule come about um, when we call it yeah. order liberal. No, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, several of those countries essentially used uh, – they treated it as an external anchor, so there was no buy-in for the kind of reforms that uh, that they had already pre-agreed to. Um, well, actually, that brings us to your very um, interesting conclusion. Um, the, the, between the two of you, you wrote this, uh, you wrote this forward-looking essay, which is based on – the, the following quote, if auto liberals want to be relevant in, in the 21st century, they need to escape pure exegesis of their past heroes, rediscover the reforming spirit of their liberal ideals and apply them anew to the existing socioeconomic challenges in Europe. And you set out this, this uh, agenda that goes, as you say, goes way beyond <laughs> just you, you're, what I think most people would consider to be auto liberal uh, policy framework. Could, could you set out the the four big ideas you have here and the, the underlying problems that you see uh, in in European uh, in the European econ economic structure? Of course, I, maybe I start with uh, those four points that you just mentioned, yeah. Tim. So, what is important to to note, and that's a, a theme in, in the book, uh, but it's also a theme in in the work of of, of Tim um, and, and me, that we say. Well, we have. You only can understand order liberalism um, um, if you clearly um, understand, um, you know, the role of institutions and the role of the state as a central player. Um, and and that's interesting because it's something that you know when you look into other neoliberal scholarship, that's a question that is sometimes uh, neglected or is not, uh, you know, really um, em uh, emphasized. Now, what is the role of the state? Well, we would say, and of, you know, uh, let's say, you know, formal institution more generally. 
first and foremost, you know, we need non-market institutions to create a functioning market, right? Uh, so it is really at the state that sort of co-creates a framework of rules which provide basically this order of free, open, and competitive markets. And, and, and all those three attributes are important. You know, markets have to be free, um, meaning basically that uh, it's the market participants that ultimately come up with contracts and the content of contracts. Uh, we don't impose them. They have to be open, right? It's not just a, um, a few uh, players that define the markets. And, and they have to be competitive, right? Uh, again, not uh, just two or, or, or three big players. Now, apart from that, which is basically more or less, uh, you know, nowadays um, standard textbook economics, what is important is, uh, and that's the second point of this four-point agenda, is the uh, important notion of power and the dispersion of power that was always, uh, you know, at the center of all the liberal reasoning. Um, and it, it, that essentially means that the state and government institutions have to be strong enough to resist the influence of special interest groups. And this is obviously a very important point when we think about European institutions and who actually, um, you know, has a stake in some of those, uh, you know, uh, negotiations that happen in Brussels. Um, so that's a, a very important second pillar. The third pillar is, and this is something that we, uh, you know, at the beginning of this conversation already mentioned is, that there is a role both on the national, but maybe also on the supranational level um, for institutions to provide protection against certain socioeconomic hazards um, in the form of, uh, you know, welfare state measures. And that there is that protective role. And we think that is essential when we talk about the current crises, because that is something that citizens don't see when they think about liberal economic expertise. You know, they don't see that protective role. And uh, we say that's actually inherent in, in those early order liberal scholars um, that, you know, we're trying to find an answer to um, the, the economic and socioeconomic hazards of, of the interwar period, but then also the post-World War uh, period. And, and finally, and that's an important point that uh, we always emphasize, and I just emphasized before, that, you know, those measures that uh, I just talked about are basically constrained by two regulatory ideals. And those ideals are consumer sovereignty and citizen sovereignty. Now, this sounds very abstract, right? Um, let me just flesh them out a bit. So consumer sovereignty is really that we ultimately have on markets the consumers defining the products that are served, right? It's not um, uh, you know, the companies or the state that says... Uh, what we uh, produce. It's the consumers. And uh, the more difficult idea, but it's essential, I think, for the implementation of all the liberal rules is citizen sovereignty, that it's ultimately, you know, the citizens that participate, uh, that engage in democracy, and that experts listen to when they come up with uh, with the policies. Now, um, before I go on too long, I, I just want to uh, mention one more point. And that's basically the point that we say, well, if you have those for abstract um, ideas, you actually can come up with a, both an economic but also a normative program to tackle some of those pressing socioeconomic issues that we have. And what we identify as the most pressing um, economic or socioeconomic issue uh, in Europe nowadays is really this um, uh, tension between, on the one hand, uh, you could call it a fundamental asymmetry between the winners, on the one hand, that are urban educated, mobile, 
and losers, on the other hand, that are often in rural areas, uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged, less educated. And the liberal economic order of post-World War II Europe often didn't find the answer to tackle this question. Um, and the reason was simple, right? For, for, for a couple of decades, um, we had economic growth. We had basically trickle-down economics on some level that you know everybody benefited. But what happened over the last um, uh, few decades is we saw that implicit social contract falling apart, right? Uh, and, and that... Um, we need to, on a European and also on a national level, to tackle those distributional issues that liberal ec- economists and other liberal scholars often tended to neglect. And that's one of our core points in this chapter. Right. Um, just before we come to our f- my final question, uh, I have a pre-final question, which is, you, as you, you pointed out, the differentiation between... Uh, older order liberal scholars and the people doing the cutting edge work now. And I don't want to be ageist here, but who who should we be reading apart from the two of you for the most up-to-date cutting edge order liberal uh, uh, scholarship? Oh, that's, that's a good question, actually. <laughs> um, uh, there are, of course, a couple of, of uh, people working in Germany, uh, sometimes writing in German, but, but I, I would say... People that I really um, like uh, are Stefan Kolev, who also wrote mm-hmm. the uh, first chapter uh, in our volume, um, Niels Goldschmidt, uh, who, who's uh, one in the, at, at, the, at the end of the book in, in one of these chapters. Uh, the, these are people who are doing really interesting stuff. Um, uh, and a couple more, Malte, do you have someone uh, you want to, to add specifically? No, it's just that um, it, what I have, and it, you touched on this at the beginning of the interview. I, I was struck at at the what seemed to me to be the paucity of uh, literature in English on this subject in in, in recent years. Um, so I'm just looking for uh, for you know for listeners to be able to identify who who they should look out for. I- so I, you know, my answer. I, I'm currently teaching and living in in the U.S. And for me, it's interesting uh, to not just look at a narrow German scene that writes narrowly on auto liberalism, but to broaden the view and go back to um, some of the stuff that we already mentioned at the beginning of this interview when we said auto liberalism was never an isolated, uh, you know, intellectual tradition. It was always embedded in a broader international community of scholars, a loose, you know, thought collective, you could say, that was always on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think that is actually the most fruitful way, um, both in terms of, you know, the potential workshop that we organize, but also in terms of uh, scholars to read, to not, you know, look simply at, you know, German faculties and who's there, but to to understand who's writing that spirit. And, um, you know, you then, uh, and this is a point that we also make in our chapter, you have this emerging PPE community, uh, a community of uh, scholars writing in philosophy, politics, and economics with a yearly mm. conference that tackle a lot of these questions, you know, thinking uh, not just in terms of rules, but how to combine normative reasoning with economic thinking, how to 
uh, combined thinking about legal institutions with sound economic reasoning and, you know, um, philosophical um, justification. And I think that would, for me, be a natural, uh, you know, recommendation for all people who are interested in auto-liberalism to really read uh, widely in this field of PPE. Uh, and, and there you have both fascinating um, philosophers like Jerry Gauss, uh, who unfortunately passed away recently. You have um, economists at George Mason University that write in that Buchanan tradition that um, are very interesting. But of course, you have scholars in, in Germany that, um, that, that Tim just mentioned, uh, both writing from a historical perspective, but also from a very um, you know, contemporary perspective on, on, on what auto-liberalism should be. So that would be my natural answer to mm-hmm. your question, Tim. Yeah, and, and it, it did, it did um, meet my underlying question, I guess, which is there seems to be quite a lot of overlap with with the public choice school. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot, lot in English on public choice. Well, uh, to finish, I've, I've asked you both to recommend two books to read, one very broadly in your specialist area, perhaps, and one personal choice. What did, what did you both come up with? Um, let, let me just get uh, or one step back and, and say one thing. <laughs> what, what, what we still really need uh, is, uh, I mean, Malta just said, okay, take the broad picture. And I, I was mm. much more narrow in my answer uh, by, by naming uh, two, two colleagues. Uh, but I think what we really need is, is a, a scholarship that combines these two lines. The, where, where some people who really show how these different schools relate. And, and I think that is going to be a challenge for the next years to really work out these, these linkages between the different schools and to, sh- to show that the, these people are really working on very similar issues, but, but mm. use very different ideas and works and so on uh, to, to come to, to similar results. Uh, I just wanted to say that. And, and regarding the, the two books, um, I... I um, I have, of course, of course, one book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to read it over the summer. And that is uh, Kenneth Dyson, uh, Conservative Liberalism, Auto-Liberalism and the State, Disciplining Democracy and the Market. Uh, and I'm especially interested in the question uh, that you, you already mentioned, Tim. Uh, why is auto-liberalism a conservative liberalism uh, mm. as Kenneth Dyson argues here, and why is it not a social or a left liberalism? And that's uh, that's something I want to understand. But first, I need to understand, of course, why it's mostly conservative liberalism. Uh, and and a little bit broader than that, or my personal recommendation, because I'm just reading this book and it's really fascinating. That's Robert S. Taylor, Exit Left: Markets and Mobility in Republican Thought. Uh, this is is. Uh, very interesting because it combines these ideas of uh, Albert Hirschman uh, with also issues that I'm interested in as an auto liberal. It's, it's much about exit and competition, but in, in very different perspectives, like in the family and so on. And it's a really fascinating mm-hmm. book. Uh, and uh, that's something I can really recommend. Okay. Thank you. Well, uh, Malta. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I, I, let me start with the book that is more, uh, you know, in line with uh, auto liberalism and and the book and basically the theme of the book we've just talked about. That's uh, um, Darren Asimokli and James uh, Robinson, uh, the Narrow Corridor: How Nations Struggle for Liberty. 
It's published, I think, in 2019. Now, that's obviously a very, uh, you know, widely read book, a very popular, um, uh, you know, you could say a bestseller. Uh, but I think it's very interesting if one reads it with an auto-liberal lens and asks oneself, um, what can we as, you know, people writing an auto-liberal tradition learn from this more Anglo-American tradition that tackle very similar questions? And, and the core question of the book is, when, you know, historically speaking, over the last, um, you know, 5,000 years, uh, did societies emerge that were free, uh, where basically there was a certain balance, and they call that uh, the Red Queen effect in the book, a balance between state on the one hand and civil society on the other hand. And the central question of the book is really, how can power be dispersed? And that's a very auto-liberal question, but it's tackled in a very refreshingly Anglo-American way, you know, spanning nearly 5,000 years, and also mm-hmm. very empirical. And I think auto-liberal scholars can learn a, a lot from that. Now, on a more personal note, um, I um, recommend Amartya Sen's book, uh, The Idea of Justice. Um, and again, I think it's interesting if one reads that book and thinks about how can an economist like Amartya Sen write a book on philosophy. Um, and I think, uh, and Amartya Sen is, you know, obviously famous for that, and, and mm-hmm. he's one of the few who, who's excellent in, in doing that. But I think, and this is a, a topic that Tim and I also tend to mention uh, in our articles, all the liberals shouldn't shy away from normative reasoning, uh, from defending certain core liberal values, and to, um, you know, basically uh, go down a similar path like Amartya Sen did. And uh, Sen was quite successful. And I think all the liberals should do something similar with their, uh, with their background and not um, totally go down that um, technical um, route and, and, and become all econometricians. Um, having mm-hmm. said this, nothing, nothing's wrong with econometrics, <laughs> but I think there's something uh, appealing and charming in the all the liberal traditions that is their um, unique selling point, and they shouldn't lose that. Yeah. Okay. Well, th- uh, thank you both. Very interesting. T- today, I've been talking to Malta Dolt and Tim Krieger about their order liberalism and European economic policy. Uh, thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. It was a pleasure talking to you. Mm-hmm.